0: Folks, here's a youngster whose mom really knows the score. You know what this is, Johnny? Sure, it's juvenile. Mm -hmm. My mom gives me some every day.
1: She says it's to make me gain weight and grow. And uh, does it? I guess so. I sure get awful hungry. Mom says I eat more than Dad does.
0: (laughs) Does it make you feel good too?
1: I always feel good. I'm pretty strong.
0: Well, by golly, I guess you are, young fella. I wouldn't want to tangle with you. You know, Johnny, I think that a lot of mothers would like to help their youngsters gain weight and grow, just like you.
1: Hello, everyone. That was a clip from a rather quaint 1950s commercial for a product called Juvenile. Outside of this commercial, I can't find any reference to this tonic ever having existed, which leads me to believe it wasn't perhaps quite as effective as little Johnny believed it to be. But what about pharmaceutical medicine in general? Today's guest, Antony Samurov, has recently published a book called Seven Pharma Myths Debunked, where he casts a sceptical eye on the industry's claims to be responsible for the increase in life expectancy we've seen over the past 150 years. In this interview, I ask Antony about his research into both the negative and positive sides of this coin, how the pharmaceutical paradigm may be fatally flawed, and what a fundamentally different approach to medicine might look like. Anthony is a professional psychotherapist who also writes on economics, so I started out by asking him where his interest to write this book came from.
0: For me personally, I guess my interest in health and, by extension, the medical industry came from my own desire to overcome various ailments that uh, I have had some of which since i was a child and not finding any any solutions through the mainstream uh channels. so that led me to trying a whole bunch of other stuff throughout my life like i kind of see myself as a little bit of a laboratory both in the realms of psychotherapy i guess, uh, the psychological healing of the mind and just life in general like i'm kind of Sometimes known as the libertarian self help guy. And in everything, like I, I put out media on improving communication skills, on all sorts of personal development topics. And those are just things that I learned from my own desire to upgrade my life. And I guess physical health has been a big part of it too. So I, I try stuff out and then I, I kind of report. So I was looking for a project that I could like really get into and because of the whole lockdowns and COVID 19 stuff a lot of the projects that I was considering just didn't seem urgent enough or like it seems a little bit philosophical or highfalutin I was like well people really need help right now and since I'd um learned quite a lot about this stuff pharmaceutical industry already I'd already started writing a book on the economics of healthcare which I kind of put aside for a while and I was helping a naturopath uh write their book um on detoxification of the body and as soon as I started working on this book I just ever since then I've just known what I'm doing I just wake up every morning I know what the mission is you know the mission is to complete this book and I just get cracking so yeah, uh, that's kind of lengthy, convoluted answer to the question, but I guess it gives everyone a sense of where I'm coming from. I'm
1: sorry to do this, but I'm gonna to have to digress slightly already and take us off course because I'm just interested in what you were saying there about being a being a laboratory and having these things overlapping. Mm-hmm. So I assume that your psychotherapeutic work is informed by what you've noticed in life has helped you in terms of your mind. And I've got to ask, well. One, is that the case? And two, do you see kind of overlaps between things like the philosophical principles expressed in Austrian economics and psychological well-being and how we could apply that methodology then to things like understanding health or the pharmaceutical industry?
0: Interesting. Okay. yeah, I mean, I got into counselling because I had a lot of issues with depression and anxiety and all sorts of things like that and by the time I finished my undergrad I felt like the thing I was kind of best at was like unmessing myself up or I thought by I'd already started to run self-help workshops communication different things and I thought you know going and doing my post-grad studies and counseling would would be fulfilling yeah and and would be a, a way to validate what I was already doing and and take it further and learn more stuff so maybe if i hadn't suffered from anxiety and depression you know i wouldn't have got into any of these stuff because life would have been relatively easy but i wouldn't have had to think is there anything i need to do health-wise or or something like that to like not feel bad you know i spent over six months on yoga retreats um in my 30s and, and all sorts of retreats and all sorts of things so i was like really leaving no stone unturned trying all sorts of stuff So yeah, I guess everything. Do I see parallels between? As it's one of these uh, double, triple question uh, situations where I I I have lost a little bit of track of of where I'm at. But I I was
1: just asking if you see parallels between because I I think that I've been like really won over by the methodology of Austrian economics and von Mises's insight that human behavior, Mm -hmm. human societies are too complex to look at for a purely empirical lens and know what's going really. on because of the number of variables and i think that psychotherapy has a lot of problems in okay just mm-hmm. in the foundations of what is well-being and how do we measure it how could we possibly constrain that to run a study and say oh well at the start Anthony, you were a four and you went up to a six so you've done well yeah um, exactly. so i do i it just intrigued me the idea that there could be some kind of a priori way of looking at it of taking like uh, things that are through otherwise there will be a performative contradiction and building on that to look at the human mind. And I'm not not saying I have really developed that to the point where anything useful has come out of it, but it just intrigues me as a a possibility, given how powerful that approach, that praxeological approach has been in the area of economics.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I like that the logical form as well, which is like when I'm writing about the medical industry and health personal, like... The, the health of the body, all, all these things, and the, the, the health of the psyche is now, you know, all these things are interrelated. If, you're, if your gut bacteria is not doing its job as, as not what it should be, that has a massive effect on the psyche. This is like accepted science now. So there's, there's more neurons in your digestive system than there are in the brain of a cat. So that's why they're sometimes saying it's the second brain, you know. So everything ties into everything else methodologically how do we validate psychotherapy i mean well i guess if you've got someone that's got a very clear indicator like i don't know they're an alcoholic or they're a substance abuser and they stop then you know that's a very objective measure and we do have this difficulty and like like you said how can you measure someone's happiness and you certainly can't measure independently you know uh, sorry interpersonally like is Jack more happy than John like and and has has he become more happy but because like you don't know what the baseline is like we all live in our own heads and we can't compare ourselves to to one another so it is an interesting question um I think it's something it's something that I've not really come to a solution with like I feel like I see the human organism as a as that as an organism that has needs and by meeting the psychological and emotional needs of a human being like growth happens whereas when they're not met growth doesn't happen and that's like an interesting thing because we say needs but most of them aren't things that you need to survive right the when we say an emotional psychological need it's something that you need to thrive Um, you won't die necessarily without it, but you could live on a very low level and not um, very, you know, you could never learn to read, okay? But that means that precludes, that precludes, you know, a popular novel, let alone Shakespeare or Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you don't need Shakespeare or Tolstoy to have a a wonderful life, but, um, sorry, you don't need them to have a life but you know they might enrich the life that you have if, if you've got the sophistication to understand it so likewise with sort of emotional psychological needs well, a lot of what i've seen is people who are intelligent um, and very switched on uh, very conscious or um, they're they notice a lot more than most people do they notice stuff. They, they find meaning in things. They find more meaning in things that most people just don't see. And uh, a lot of the time, they're more compassionate than the average person as well. And they find the coldness and callousness of the world painful. Like, why don't people care more about one another? Why are people cruel? And that's the kind of demographic that I t- tend to attract. But in that, they've been deficient in the amount of attention that they've got, uh, the qual- high quality attention when they were growing up. And, it's, and and it may be that being so sophisticated meant they had much greater need for high quality attention. Like, you know, if all you've got to speak about is the weather, then, you know, okay. You know, you can find tons of people to speak about that way, but maybe what they really needed was adults around who could open things up and create a dialogue. And whereas the the, the adults around them when they were growing up or even into adulthood were just not interested or thought that's thinking too much or and um, as a consequence, they did not develop the same way that a plant that's not given the minerals and the soil and the shelter from the wind and it's you know it's it's growing in the shade it doesn't get sunlight and it still has the potential their their seeds they, they they had more potential than most people but that is a pain to them because like they know how much potential they have and they can see from the circumstances of their life that they're not living at that potential so i would say basically they were quality attention deficient and I see a big part of my practice is giving people high quality attention, which is like the sunlight and the mineral, the nutrients that they need, like just that the body needs to dovetail into the kind of medical part, right? You know, it's like the body needs a bunch of minerals and um, amino acids and uh, omega fatty acids and um, all, all uh, all of this stuff in order to reach its full potential of health and one and a shortage in one bit essential vitamin or mineral can 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 trigger a cascade of processes in the body so similarly a lack there's probably lots of different types of high quality attention there's like genuine curiosity there's being challenged there's like you know there's a whole toolkit just as there's a whole range of vitamin vitamins and minerals you know that that is applied by a good psychotherapist and it's like that's like a vitamin iv or something like that straight into the veins so having received the what they've been in deficit with which is someone to help them work through all their stuff the rich inner environment that they're living with is yeah i just see that's the a prioristic that's my a prioristic model uh, can I prove that's what's helping people to thrive? I don't know. No, I just observe. I just observe people like open up, wake up, and um, access more of their capacities, feel themselves like they're getting the train on the tracks. So that's, again, a long answer, but I was pleased with well, most I
1: think of it. I find something quite incredible about that. The observation that the healing thing in a psychotherapeutic interaction is as simple as attention itself which is really the most foundational part of our being is that we are aware and you don't necessarily need to add a more complex technique on top of that to affect some kind of healing change you have to actually boil back to the simplest part of your being and then give that, that that simplicity to another person and that's the thing that they're lacking nourishment of that will nourish those those parts of themselves which have never been seen and will yeah, bring them alive exactly. in some sense. So the profound simplicity of that was really striking.
0: Thank you. Yes, I mean, the psychotherapist, Carl Rogers, who I'm a huge fan of, um, said that, a lot, that he would find that whenever he tried some intervention or coaching to convince the other person to do something or to try and substitute his superior knowledge for their inferior knowledge he found it was always less effective than just really listening with the intention to understand and then relaying part of what they'd understood back to the client so to act as a a mirror i think the mirror analogy is a little bit inadequate What, what you really want to do is what i like to do is what i see is really helpful is to really pull out the implications of what someone has told me. Like, a lot of the time they're pointing or talking around something. And the longer that I've been doing it, the longer I've been practicing, the more layers of meaning I can hear behind what someone is saying when they're saying it. And like, being able to open that up, you know, well that, you said that, and that would suggest that this, is that right? Um, And that really, it's like kind of expedites the process of self growth like oh yeah yeah exactly and and someone gets hearing that someone gets really enthusiastic to expand like um uh, this it's it's a quite a phenomenon to observe sometimes actually Um, so yeah help people reach a greater understanding of themselves and they sort of start to put themselves together um, in new ways or 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 make use of the meaning that they find in their experience, and if i if I know something that I think will help someone like I don't keep it to myself or anything, and uh, but I don't really see my main process you know, as being any kind of educator, it's but although the yeah, I definitely do not want to substitute my judgment for the client's judgment, but help them reach their own judgment. And then, but occasionally there's a there's a a necessity to give someone a reality check or like a wake up call or something like that because maybe they're just putting themselves down too much or not in some way not not trusting in the validity of their own experience. So very occasionally there's a it's called for me to say something like, "Well, do you want to know my do you want to know my opinion on that?" And uh, I will share it if I feel like. They need an outside view, but, um, when you've got that trust, the first thing, the first thing is to listen with the intention to understand and then demonstrate that understanding. That creates a sort of trust that is very profound. And then if you need to occasionally make an intervention, um, I kind of trust my instincts with that. I feel like I've been doing it for long enough to know what tool to use in what circumstances. So, um. I kind of, once that, the main thing is getting that trust. And once that trust is there, I feel like I can trust my, my own instincts.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that the part of interviewing I sometimes enjoy the most is when I ask a question and I do it through listening to the other person's story and kind of trying it on. I think, well, if I did those actions, what would I see if I was acting that out? And then something becomes really glaringly obvious to me and I put it to them. And th- when the reaction I get is a brief part, pause and that's a good question. I really like that because it's it's something that's so obvious they've never seen it. Like We find it difficult to question the foundations upon which we're standing. We all have to make some basic assumptions and then build our lives and build our intellectual worlds from that, build our personal sense of self. And it's, it's difficult to question the most core assumptions. We often forget we ever made them. And I think that's what is helpful. I found helpful in any sort of interaction is when I have someone who's Maybe it's a a relational thing that the the person who I'm interacting with has a different perspective on life in some way, slightly slightly different to me, and can see the assumptions I'm making that I'm unaware of. And I think this might come back around in a minute, Anthony, when we talk about the pharmaceutical industry and how certain assumptions can be made by individuals, but also entire groups of individuals can make core assumptions and then never question them again that give rise to all sorts of paradigms in medicine and science that become just enshrined.
0: Mm -hmm. Right yes there's a lot of that do you have any experience with counseling or therapy yourself i don't know if i'm revealing you by answering the no questions. well uh, sort of
1: pseudo <laughs> therapy if you like i was involved in a spirituality group it is a non-dual right. spirituality and but it was a bit more interactive saying so a bit more relational like some non-duality can be very this eastern philosophy can be very non-relational introspective uh, but we took it in a very relational setting of coming back into this deepest part of awareness within oneself and then meeting other people in that. And then I was interested to see how how that affects dialogue. If rather than just having a conversation, we really sink within, slow down our minds, and have a conversation that feels like it's going in slow motion. So every time you would say something, I would take time to reflect upon it and allow for these long gaps to emerge between it and how much more insight could arise uh, from that. Maybe I'll segue into the nature of the book. And it sort of divides into darkness and light, I suppose. Let's start with the darkness and the pharmaceutical industry. So we've been talking about assumptions a person can make that they then build upon. And if those assumptions are wrong, you're going to build a a rather wonky tower. And the pharmaceutical industry, we have certain beliefs about what it's done for humanity in terms of if we look back into the, the dark days of the 19th century where children were, the death rate was astronomical for them, average life expectancy of 17 in some british cities and, and then we obviously emerged from that where you see the death rate falling away and falling away through the, the 20th century and we attribute a lot of that to the pharmaceutical industry massively to vaccines and then antibiotics and uh, other factors too and your book is questioning those assumptions so can you maybe elaborate on that and perhaps if we've if we've got it wrong about what the, pharma- the pharmaceutical yeah. industry has done for us
0: okay and you know what i'm not just challenging that i actually go to completely mainstream sources and take the flat uh the facts from those and i do that for a reason because if i choose some weird fringe like who knows what you know um it it could be that the facts are a lot worse than what the mainstream sources report but what the mainstream sources report is bad enough but it A lot of it ought to be a scandal Hmm. so that's that's so that's where i'm really beginning um i guess in terms of assumptions the the major assumption is that we're living longer due to western medicine and i before i knew about this stuff i i heard a lot of people say oh yeah but we're living longer and things like that by the way we should add that life expectancy has been on the decline since about 2013 2014 and there's been a pretty big decline in the last two years in life expectancy um so but let's say up until 2013 we were being told that we're living longer uh, due to mainstream medicine that's not actually what the public health bodies say they say that 25 out of 30 of the years that our life expectancy has grown has been due to improvements in public health. So I'm talking about clean water running through the taps, um, sewers, refrigerators, um, better living conditions, more living space per head. Um, You know, before the invention of the automobile, there was horse-drawn carriages so that the the streets would have had horse dung everywhere. And um, people have, more access to food, so there's there's less people who are um, starving and or or have diseases like say rickets which came from mal malnourishment. Now, the quality of the food has been declining, but that's let's say a relatively recent phenomenon. um the access to food is is really staggering in historical terms. I mean, There's no way that you would have been able to have access to all these foods that come from all all over the world. So, anyway, most people are not short on access to calories, at least, even though, you know, a lot of people tend to indulge in the poor uh, choices of calories. Uh, But, yeah, I mean, so, okay, you've got 25 of the 30 years were attributable to better living conditions. And I mean, this is true. In a sense, this is still relevant because... Being poor is like a risk factor two or three times. You've got two or three times as likely to get diabetes. And people who get diabetes are also obviously more susceptible to pretty much everything else going in terms of disease, heart disease, cancer, stroke, um, um, getting a leg, limb removed, going blind, etc., etc. So being poor is still hazardous to your health. And actually, if they just take a small percentage of the money that the government currently spends, on treating preventable diseases. Because again, according to official sources, about 70% of diseases is lifestyle related. Um, so even if we take that number for granted, if you take a small percentage of what they're spending on healthcare and just went to the places where they had like the worst housing, got rid of the mold, improved it, because um, that you know, breathing mold would be a risk factor, uh, made sure people had access to clean water and nutrition. You actually say, you'd actually save a lot. Of, you just, you'd still save a lot of money today um, applying the same principle. But that wouldn't make pharmaceutical companies very rich now, would it? So I, get, I guess that's the, the main myth. What about the other five years? Well, three and a half they uh, attribute to um, prevention measures. I don't, I don't know all the things they include in that, but it'll be things like earlier like screenings and um aspirin for to prevent heart attacks uh, and vac- vaccines although i'm not really sure uh, myself um because most of the diseases that were and um, that we use that we vaccinate for are like things that don't really the diseases that don't really exist in ha- affluent societies anyway like you know you're not going to get polio if you've got clean water or, and things like that i mean i don't know why they're vaccinating children for hepatitis b because you know how are they going to get that unless they're um sexually assaulted like and all sorts of things like that so um yeah so so you could you could put down one and a half years of increased life according to official sources to pharmaceutical medicine again i'm not sure because when you look at the official figures they're admitting that um pharmaceutical medicine is the third leading cause of death in the usa um over a hundred thousand people die a year of properly of taking properly prescribed pills that means they just did what the doctor told them to do and they killed themselves on uh, about the same again it's really closer to 125,000 to things that they shouldn't have taken either because they were allergic to it or they were contraindicated or they they got the dosage wrong or they were on another medication that it had a bad reaction to and then there's all these hospital related infections like um so i mean i can go on and on and on about this stuff and you know no doubt i will you haven't asked me a question for a little while but I'll, i'll just um throw in one more thing most drugs are not there to improve health and I can improve health. Coming back to what we spoke about earlier on with the psychotherapy being a form of like nurturance for the psyche. Um, drugs don't have any nutritional elements in them. There's no water, there's no amino acids, there's no vitamins, there's no minerals, there there there's you no know, oxygen. There's there's nothing to detoxify the body, eat of metabolic waste either, right? So a drug can never help you build healthy tissues because it's not got anything that your body can use to build healthy tissues with. The vast majority of treatments are palliatives. You're making a trade-off. They'll reduce your symptoms in exchange for you getting side effects. And it's up to you whether you think that the reduction in your symptoms is worth the side effects or not. Now, I'm not even against that. But as long as the healthcare protect practitioner attends to the underlying condition of the body at the same time, then you could use a palliative. The only exception is antibiotics. Well, I don't want to say only. The only exception I can think of to hand are antibiotics. There may be other exceptions which, you know, do make you better in inverted or fight disease by killing off microorganisms that may be invading you. But here's the thing, anti means against, bio means life. Antibiotics don't just kill good bacteria, they kill, sorry, bad bacteria, they kill good bacteria as well. They're toxic to the bacteria that makes up our digestive system and our immune system that our body relies upon. And also, so obviously, they've, the overuse of antibiotics has opened the door to all these superbugs, uh, which are antibiotic resistant, which we now suffer with. So even when it comes to that, you know, you don't want to take an antibiotic unless you actually absolutely have to. You want, you know, probiotics. You want to go with the healing me- mechanism. You want to enhance the healing, enhance the body's ability to um, stand up for itself against invaders rather than... Um, wage war indiscriminately on healthy and unhealthy cells as as those treatments do. So that's like the long version. <laughs> okay, so this, is, this is what I
1: find interesting. The idea that the, at the root of modern medicine, there are fundamental assumptions. So the assumption is against when disease occurs, seeing that as something mm-hmm. in the system that's out of balance or having a nutritional deficiency and rather using drugs to treat that. And when that assumption is made in the institutions at some point, and then when a medical student goes along and takes that assumption on in their training, it's probably never questioned again. And that gives rise to a whole medical structure that is based on and is unquestioning of those assumptions. Would would you kind of agree with that statement that we see that playing
0: out? Yeah, for sure. I mean, just, Think about what what are all the um, drugs in mainstream medicine called? Antibiotics, antihistamines, anti-inflammatories, anti-diuretics, decongestions, proton pump inhibitors, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, right? So the problem is they want to look at the body as a whole bunch of truck parts and then if something goes wrong well they say something's going wrong so they're going to come in with an intervention and treat that part but the whole thing system's a whole so you can't you can't just throw off one chemical you can't just treat serotonin and depression because serotonin is used in the immune system and the digestive system as well so if you fiddle around with it in the brain, you're fiddling around with it everywhere else. And then people who are on antidepressants in the long term get digestive troubles. Um, you throw something off, and the body goes, "Oh wow!" Like, "Oh, I need to compensate for that." It might amp up, um, in another way. You know, um, the the every everything the body does is aimed at an intelligent purpose. It's like it's not just um flying blind it's um a lot of the time the body will do something that appears bad or damaging adverse in order to stop something worse from happening so here's one from the world of alternative health i don't know if this hypothesis is true or not but it illustrates the point so if this isn't true something comparable to it is true so they say, well, why do you get osteoporosis or um, arthritis, for example? Um, you, if you eat too many foods that are acidic, that leave an acid, acid residue in your body, your body needs a means of um, neutralizing the acid. So it starts leaching alkaline metals from your bones, calcium, magnesium. to to neutralize the acid to set your body to homeostasis. Because if the blood gets acidic, then that goes all the way through your body and it's gonna burn every cell. It's gonna be a river of acid running through your body, burning every cell as it goes. So your body has an intelligent purpose. The, The downside of that is then your bones start to degrade. right? So that would be an example of the body trying to do something less bad, which is like your bones are degenerating in order to save you from worse harm which is your blood getting acidic so there's a whole series of these sort of hypotheses of a lot of what is considered to be like say disease is just your body expelling things like you know you get you get a cough or you or you get mucus a runny nose or something like that your body there's something in your body that your body wants out if it's harmful for your body you don't want to stop up the um, detoxification symptom with an anti-congestion. That's a silly idea. You know, you want to s- lie in bed and drink water and support the body in mm-hmm. producing mucus or whatever it is so that it can get rid of what it, whatever it wants to get rid of, whether that's some stuff that you've breathed in that, that is bad for you over the years that's accumulated and now your body's decided it's time for a s- spring clean. Or maybe it's just a bunch of more, Maybe you have an infection. Maybe you have an invasion and your body's like expelling microorganisms it doesn't want out of the nose I'm not really sure but the principle the the underlying principle can be understood in those terms so from a holistic perspective a lot of what mainstream medicine is doing is repressing symptoms Hmm. the symptoms themselves are intelligent processes they're the body attempting to cure itself
1: do you think there's a deeper level to that assumption of what you seem to have is a conflict between a view that says the body is really dumb, it's thrown together mm-hmm. through a random process involving mutations being selected for, and it's always going to go wrong, break down, and it's only really here to pass on our genes anyway, to mm-hmm. a view that says the body is highly intelligent system, capable of self-regulation and largely looking after itself maybe not to the level if you break a limb, it's not going to grow a new one, but on the level of things like coughing being to expel toxins or the example mm-hmm. you gave of osteoporosis, that you have a collision between these really two different philosophical views about the nature of being human.
0: Right. Yes. Um, and even, I mean, from even from the evolutionary perspective, I mean, evolution isn't stupid. It happened over millions of years. You know, why would the body... Be stupid. It, it's needed to survive, and so yeah, I mean, it, it, that's exactly right. That what they have is the biomedical model, which sees the body again, sees the body as a bunch of parts. I take the holistic view, and um, hmm. so everything's related to everything else. You can't um, throw one switch without affecting all the others. Here's an interesting thing about that, because you were asking about parallels to the to Austrian economics. Mm-hmm. I was learning the other day about the move from what they say is the move from the biomedical model, which I disagree with, to evidence-based medicine. And the interesting thing is, this sounds great, evidence-based medicine, but what, what actually happened in real life is, at least when they had the biomedical model... Um, Doctors had a sort of underlying philosophy of the body and they could use their wits to um, measure interventions against that. Um, Mises says in theory and history and in in some of his other works, um, first of all, you cannot and you can't interpret history without a theory. Like people want to people want to like look at history as a bunch of facts and say oh we should be objective he says well that's not that's impossible because without a correct theory you can't actually figure out whether one event led to another right so if you're if you don't understand economics you might think that the new deal stopped the great depression fdr's new deal stopped the great depression if you understand economics well enough you'll know that's impossible because more government spending can't end a depression because where's the money coming from it's like taking money out of the deep end of the swimming pool and pouring it into the shallow end and you're going to spill some along the way so with the wrong theory you can't interpret you 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 can you you can interpret events wrongly but you you need a theory You, you need a theory to interpret history and similarly like we might say if i told you oh i i brought out a study and it said it rains it, it, it rained upwards five percent of the time in the yucatan last year like you'd instantly you'd look at me funny they'd be like that doesn't make any sense It's like, oh no no no, we've got a study we've got a study it says it rained upwards five percent of the time in the yucatan last year and you're like but that that's not how rain works okay so so it can't have rained up it can't have rained up, right? There must be something wrong with your study. And economists are kind of like, uh, Austrian economists are faced with the same, like bashing their head against the wall when it comes to people saying, we ran a bunch of studies and it showed that the, that the minimum wage doesn't decrease employment. And you're like, well, you're not taking into account enough factors if you say that. I mean, you can't, you can say employment increased, even after they put the minimum wage up but you can't say that like it's higher than it would have been if there was no minimum wage maybe some people moved into your your state from neighboring states to take advantage of the higher minimum wage or something like that and that led to more more employment but we know if you put a tax on beer people will buy less beer because it's more expensive to buy the beer right it's just like that is what economic theory on average over time, they'll buy less beer than they would have. So so why why would it be any different with the wage? This is kind of like the move to evidence-based medicine, right? Now doctors are just meant to do what the health authorities say the evidence says. So they're not meant they've they've got no underlying theory anymore. Right? What it is is what does the British Cardiac Society say you should do, do when it comes to statins. Who should you give statins to? They've they've collected the data and they're going to tell doctors in this in this scenario prescribe this because that's what the evidence says. In that scenario, prescribe that. The problem is um, everyone in all of these bodies have financial ties to pharma. The meta analyses that they rely on to make their prescriptions are based on studies that are conducted by pharma. And the more you look into how these studies are run, and I've got in the ebooks books of pharma myths, and there's going to be even more in the final book I'm writing, uh, like a, a laundry list of ways that um, pharmaceutical companies mess around with data And also, they're not obliged to submit all of the data to the journal. And they're not obliged to submit all of the data to the regulator. They can say that's proprietary information. It's not until they're sued that the litigator can say, well, you need to show us all of your raw data so we can find out if you committed fraud or not. And then, even if they are sued, sometimes, what they end up paying out for submitting fraudulent data to journals or to the regulator is less than the profit than they made for the drug that they were committing fraud eh, about um i was i did a a little video on TikTok just yesterday about one of them Um, neurontin pfizer's drug neurontin it's also prescribed as gabapentin as a generic people are still prescribing this um, for nerve-related pain relief for bipolar disorder. Even though Pfizer's own studies say that people in bipolar disorder had more severe symptoms on gabapentin than in a control group. They were sued for it in court. They were sued for illegally marketing the drug. But it was barely covered in the media and what they were sued for was less than half a year's revenues for the drug. So right. the doctors are used. Doctors in the States that are used to prescribing it, they're just used to prescribing it. So they're going to keep on prescribing it until someone tells them. And even if someone tells them, they'll go, oh, I'm sure that's not true because, you know, I've I've seen tons of patients do well on it. Okay. So, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, there's so much there.
1: Well, no, I'm just think like it's it's you've gone right into what I wanted to ask about really because one of the
0: mm-hmm.
1: hardest things I've think for me to get my head around is this use and abuse of science and the fact that people don't seem to notice it. Now, I've always been a fan of say an a priori method and very into Austrian economics and all this kind of thing, and uh, but I think my faith in empirical science has been really damaged over the past three years, correlating with, of course, the the incident of COVID. So and I think this is true of a lot of people. We would have all had more faith in scientists um, to be able to employ empirical methodologies to come to some kind of truth. And that's really been shattered because we've seen a three-year period where no consensus could be reached on the usefulness of masks, say. And it just went all over the place, from the not working, to them working, to two of them being better than one, to none of them being better. And and then, of course, let's not even get started on the V word and the efficiency of, of lockdowns. And really, to me, I came back to a, a more non imperial way of making obvious statements about COVID. Well, if you introduce the idea of a pandemic, not the pandemic itself, just the idea of a pandemic, medical systems will necessarily change in preparation for that. Those changes Mm -hmm. themselves can affect things like the death rate. So if the NHS said, OK, we've got to get these beds cleared, so don't be keeping people hanging around too long. Let's bring back that Liverpool care pathway thing we had a few years ago. That will affect the death rate. We can't have people breathing in the hospital. So let's put them on ventilators, which themselves can be dangerous to people's lungs. That will affect the death rate. And you have these a priori, which I think are more a more powerful way of understanding what's going on than the empirical studies. And I'm not, I'm not saying that can't work, but I'm I'm really shocked at our inabilities to use empirical knowledge to come to any sort of societal consensus. Mm-hmm. The, the graphs don't seem to, because a friend of mine said this at the start, he said, Look, I don't care about any of this science stuff because this won't be settled by science. This will be settled by politics. So it doesn't matter what the mm-hmm. studies on math say because it, it will never. people will never agree with them, right? But this is not an empirical question. It's a right. what team are you on question. And I hate to say he was right, you know, I had a little bit more faith, but he was absolutely right. So can you, yeah, I mean, just mm-hmm. just really want to yeah. draw out more what you're saying well, there about this, this failure of empiricism.
0: Yes, I mean, okay, yeah, actually, you know, in an ideal world, I think I'm dedicated, you know, absolutely run these studies. Um, the problem is, it's not the only problem, but it, I mean, it's a major problem. Uh, all the studies are all the studies are run by pharma and um all not all i mean some are run by the universities and some are funded by the government but that's as good as funding as being funded by pharma to be honest because pharma will fund the universities and they'll um they'll also put up candidates so could we have could we have proper empirical science in medicine maybe if you basically got rid of the fda and you replaced it with um third party um like you know when you have a when you when something gets certified um or organic or kosher or something like that you know you have some independent company go in and test the soil or whatever to make sure it's four to six percent living con living material or I, i don't know okay you may instead the, the pharmaceutical companies pay a third party to run the studies and their open book and blah, blah, blah. It could it could hypothetically exist. I think the problem is that so few drugs, in my opinion, are actually effective that it would be the death of the pharmaceutical industry. So so that brings us back to the empirical, the aprioristic method. Yes, I know I don't need studies to tell me that most drugs are not effective or at least they're not going to improve someone's health they might be effective at mitigating their circumstances their symptoms and even then a lot of the time they commit fraud to make it look like they mitigate circumstances more symptoms more than they actually do whether it's like pain or nerve or what, what whatever it is okay but but i but But I know it's wrong. I know most of them are not going to – I know none of them are going to make the body healthier because a priori, I know that none of them have any nutritional elements in it. I know that none of them are going to help the body do what it's meant to do better than it already does it, right? The only thing it's going to do is, like, it's going to throw some switches. And, like, for some – like, let's take psychiatric drugs. First of all, there's tons, tons of outrageous fraud psychiatric drugs I mean you could argue that the whole field of psychiatry psychiatry is pseudoscience and and I probably will argue that but let's just take it for granted you give someone a pharmaceutical drug uh, a psychiatric drug it throws off a bunch of switches in the brain and changes the way that person feels for some people they're going to find that weird new way that they feel more tolerable than their other way and for others they're they're not and that's why it's like just like throw try this drug for a few months or you still feel like crap well why don't you try this one for a few months like it's a lot of trial trial and error um but yeah none of it's really going so i i just like if, if you know that that's not how the like i I'm reluctant to say this on podcast because it's like you know you're freaking sent to uh the uh, you're an alternative dimension uh, in order for saying anything like that but i know that uh, that vaccines can't make people more healthy because that's not the way the body works right mm-hmm. you can't introduce like small amounts of like aluminum uh, aluminum sorry i've spent too much time in the americas now um you know Uh, formaldehyde whatever uh, cells from aborted fetus or egg or you know whatever go up and look at the vaccine ingredients right you can't introduce these antigens into the body and expect the body to get healthier so um it's like the body is extremely discerning about what it allows into its blood into the blood and that's why you have these, you know, people will say stupid things like, oh, there's more mercury in a tuna steak than there was in the, in the, there was in the, therm- the marisol in the vaccine. First of all, it's not the same type of mercury. Second of all, there's a very big difference between putting something in your mouth and having it um, injected directly into your vein. When you put something into your mouth, your body has a natural purging mechanisms. You can be sick you can spit you can sneeze you can cough you can get the shits you can have to urinate you know you suddenly get really thirsty you need to drink lots of water if you took just the tiniest if you if you drunk some detergent you'd just puke up if you injected the smallest amount of detergent into your vein you'd die right so what you're doing is you're you're basically skipping all of the body's alert systems and um, you know going straight to red alert skipping past green skipping past orange and putting the antigens into the blood now what we're going to ha- um what well, what you can see is as the number of vaccines increased major increase in um between 86 and 89 that's when all of these 89 is the like red line now here where all of these Diseases that weren't barely seen before, from colitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, uh, the one that begins with A, um, etc. You know, these just suddenly became more prevalent. Now, I would like uh, also, again, prior to that, around 1960, there was a doubling in the number in Scandinavia when they where they have about 20 vaccines on the schedule as opposed to America that has 75. They don't have such astonishing rates of these diseases. Now I'm happy to be proven wrong. There's 800,000 completely unvaccinated Americans. All the CDC needs to do is gather the data and do a um, and age adjust the uh, amount of diseases, chronic diseases, for amongst a large unvaccinated population. You've got 800,000 people to choose from, and a similar number of people who are vaccinated and um, the CDC refused to do the study they'd be uh, Congress has even ordered them to do a study comparing the long-term health outcomes of vaccinated and unvaccinated populations but they won't do it so make of that and yet we're the ones that are anti-science they refuse to do the studies we are the ones that are anti-science right so just yeah coming back to your a priori method you have to know how the body works first you have to have the correct model and then you can then you'll know you know that most drugs are a complete waste of time or at least you can take it as a palliative to mitigate your symptoms while you meet the body's needs
1: okay let's move on then and talk about what i think many people might find the most interesting part of your book and that's the the light side of the equation with things you've done and investigated and directly experienced regarding the terrain theory and this different model of health. And one of the things, I mean you're welcome to say anything about that. One of the things that I think is very interesting you focus on, you talk about oxygen therapies. And we had a, a Dr. Anthony Marshall on a few weeks ago talking about the value of oxygen therapies. And he yes. had a whole um theory of um, cancer based on the work of a German physician, Dr. Otto Warburg, uh, which people are really intrigued by. But I you know. um you had an experience in a hyperbaric chamber. And I find this like hyperbarics, I find incredible because I-, I couldn't believe it when I first learned not about their effects, but how just generally accepted the benefits of hyperbarics are for all sorts of things. I'll let you talk about that. Um, and the fact that there's not one in every town, like where I live, there's currently a charity which I think is just about getting the money together to build a new hyperbaric mm-hmm. chamber because we haven't had one for a long time now. I think there's some kind of very small emergency use only chamber for for divers here um, but mm-hmm. it, it's quite incredible really because this isn't like a kind of woo-woo alternative aligning your chakras um science stuff this is like very very solid uh the, the effect of hyperbarics mm-hmm. and yet they're not you know for wound healing also so then they're not they're not everywhere so perhaps you could mm-hmm. talk about the benefits you observe what the benefits more generally are and 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 and, and more broadly anything you want to say beyond that
0: yeah, it seems to me that most people gets uh get sent to them when they have a burn or something like that because um, mainstream medicine accepts that it's good for treating that some athletes use them um, but yeah i mean i i tried hyperbaric chamber especially in morelia mexico about this time last year and uh, as i said i've tried tons of things i, I just experienced clear-headedness um a lot more energy i've tried a lot i just felt really really good i did I, I think i did 10 sessions in two weeks which is about you know what they're what they're recommending to get to really really experience it. and um I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how i understand why i would understand that it might the other thing is you know i've got various dietary limitations bec- uh, which is part of what led me on to this stuff Um, my body can't cope well with all good stuff but if i'm good then i get a little bit of of, i get a little bit of a buffer and i can sneak the odd pizza now and then if i'm if i'm generally good but yeah i noticed the instant yeah pretty fast that my digestion was running much better and i'm guessing that it will probably do wonders for anyone who's suffering from inflammation and my understanding it well already from like mainstream medical science is not accepting detox as a thing yet which i think is kind of weird because we know that our cells produce waste products like ammonia urea um carbon compounds and things like that you know we so so these waste cellular wastes need to be taken out of the body usually through the urine and the back passage and um A lot of them need to bond to oxygen so what i would say i would surmise a lot of the benefit the hyperbaric chamber is it's increasing the amount of oxygen which gets into your blood and once it's in your blood it it bonds with the cellular wastes that your that your weight that your body generates and takes them out so you get, get a nice spring cleaning of the whole body by going in hyperbaric chamber and if you think about it like um like you're doing fine as long as you produce like say you've got two bins and the 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 bin man comes once a week and takes your two bins away so that's fine as long as you're creating less than two bins worth of rubbish but if every week you have an extra bag of rubbish your body's making more waste than it's taking out then over the weeks months your garage starts to stink you know and that's the body that most people are living in especially because they eat too much and they eat too much of the wrong kinds of foods they don't get enough exercise they don't get outside to breathe fresh air enough they don't do all the basic things that um the body is required to do in order to function in an optimal way so okay so you you have a buildup of waste that's why fasting and like doing a juice cleanse where you only drink just vegetables um, for a week or whatever or three days you know is so popular now and people are seeing the benefits of it because what you're basically doing is giving your system a rest so that it can just clean up it can just get rid of the storage of extra bags of rubbish in your garage instead of coming once a week you know when you're fasting and you're drinking six liters of water a day your your garbage truck is coming every day and um, so so you're, you're getting a nice spring clean and um, that is that that is what i would assume at least part of the function of the hyperbaric oxygen chamber is you're getting more oxygen in so that your body can m- m- use that oxygen to mobilize wastes remove them from your body
1: okay so anthony why don't you say anything else you'd like to about that side of the work that i know you maintain a website terrain medicine and
0: it's terrain
1: science okay so tell people about that what anything else you want on that topic and where people can get this book and this is just explain that this is a like a precursor to a larger book that's coming out sometime this year
0: next year so explain everything about that please yeah in the new year so yeah i've been writing a book on the pharmaceutical industry and i have a lot of really good information and i didn't think it was doing that much good on my hard drive so i put together this ebook which you can download for free at 7 the number seven then p-h-a-r-m-a myths like m-y-t-h-s 7 and it's got some really really good information from the book that I'm writing, um. So I would like, yeah, get it. You also have the option, which I would really kindly appreciate, when you download it. Although you can download it for free, you can also contribute. So you just, um, if if you've got some quid lying around, it would really really help. Um, this project is basically. A labor of love i'm spending more hours on this than, I'm, than i am uh, in my therapy practice at the moment so uh, there has to, had to be a trade-off of work but i feel like this is the most fulfilling the most important thing i could be doing with my life just now and i, I had a couple of generous contributions which really really helped me focus and it, and it allows me to know that people really want this if you want yeah so you can uh, you can download the fr- the book for free from sevenfarmamess.com that will also put you on my substack well i will yeah for, your 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 email will go in there you can unsubscribe at any time but i'm continuously putting out maybe once a week once every 10 days little articles and um excerpts from the book that excerpts from the book the work a lot, work the standalone articles so you'll you'll get you'll continue to see what's going on with this and very quickly you'll see that it's like a very comprehensive logical graspable model of how the body works and how health can be attained and how you can avoid uh, a lot of the diseases that most people think are. Uh, are just inevitably come with old age these days uh, lots of people have managed to avoid them before so yeah that that's one of the advantages of it and i tackle it from a lot of angles there's the, like science and medicine angle but there's also like economics the bad economics bad politics and medicine and it's endlessly interesting the more i learn about it the more i see there is so much interesting stuff to learn about it so if you find this stuff as fascinating as i do um, it would be really, really, really great to maintain you in my network from now until when the book comes out and beyond. So that's my pitch. 7 dot And
1: my pitch is you can learn a heck of a lot in a short space of time from reading that book. So I would, as a time investment, I think it's really good bang for your book there, and it's free, so it's very oh. good bang for your book. But you know, she's as, right. well, yeah. as well, it's sports at all.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's a good point. I did. I did make it really, really tight. I did, it's, it's just a few thousand words, but it's like all killer, no filler. You know, yeah, it's, it's it all the really good stuff in there. You'll learn a lot really super quickly.
1: Okay, Anthony, thank you very much indeed.
0: Thanks so much for having me back on the show. It was a great conversation. Thanks.
1: Thank you very much for listening. One final thing. Anthony is also available for psychotherapeutic sessions and details of how to contact him are in the info box.